episode 191, Dr. Julia DeGangi, founder and CEO of NeuroHealth Partners. And it was a very, very painful decision. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes, because we all make mistakes. But what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. To learn more about Julia, her company, and more, look for links in the show notes or go to markraven.com slash mistake191. If you like the episode, please share it on social media. Rate, review, follow, tell a friend to follow. As always, thanks for listening. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to My Favorite Mistake. I'm Mark Raven, and we are joined today by Dr. Julia DeGangi. Uh, she is the founder and CEO of Neuro Health Partners, LLC. Uh, she holds a PhD in psychology and has worked in the field of neuroscience, uh, publishing extensively in the scientific literature. Um, she is known for um, you know, helping others think about how the brain's wiring affects workplace behaviors on, on things including motivation, performance, and relationships. And I think that includes how we respond uh, to mistakes. So I think we'll be able to explore that today. Uh, so Julia, before I tell everyone a little bit more about you and your background, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm so glad to be here. So thanks for having me, Mark. Yeah, I'm excited to hear your story, and we're going to have a great conversation ahead. Um, but to tell you a little bit more about Julia, uh, she has worked extensively in U.S. politics, including presidential campaigns and at the White House press office. So she's accustomed to helping people gracefully navigate fast-paced, high-stakes professional environments. And, and, and that's a realm where some people don't gracefully uh, do anything. So I'm glad there were some people that had your uh, counsel and advice, Julia. Um, and she's also given a TEDx talk. I'll put a link to this in the show notes on the relationship between our brains and stress. So, uh, you know, with that, Julia, of the different things you've done, I'm really curious to hear, what would you say is your favorite mistake? Geez, you got me thinking about this question for a while. So, I think that my favorite mistake, and it's still a little bit bittersweet, but um, was my, I don't even know if I would call it my decision, but at the moment when I left academia. Mm. So as you mentioned, I have a PhD and I have worked and trained and conducted research in, frankly, the top labs in the world. So mm. Harvard, Columbia, University of Illinois, Chicago, Georgetown. So I had been... Um, I had quite literally gone to school for 28 years. Mm-hmm. So this, this coding to be an academic was in me so fiercely. And it really felt like a vocation, right? So my my area of expertise neuroscientifically is the relationship between the brain and, and traumatic stress. Um, but there was a lot of stress happening in my own life. So I had two children under two. Mm-hmm. My mother was very sick. Uh, I have a a very disabled brother. So these sort of personal, I don't know what you would call them, personal situations, personal factors had come to a head and it just kind of became clear that um, academia was not the route for me. Just the schedules that you have to keep in academia, especially if you're grant funded, you know, you're constantly hustling. It It has a very entrepreneurial spirit, right? 
And it was a very, very painful decision. And I, um, when I first made the decision to leave academia, I felt like my life <laughs> had ended because such a huge part mm-hmm. of my identity, how I'd been coded to understand myself, what I thought my purpose on this planet was. Um, I really thought that I was here to help neuroscientifically understand the neural underpinnings of traumatic stress and how to alleviate disorders like, you know, PTSD, panic, and so on. So, um, It was bad for a while. So why is it my favorite mistake? It's my favorite mistake because it has been the most expansive decision of my life. Mm -hmm. So I have always been good at taking very complex science and translating it for people who are not scientists. So in other words, telling really, really powerful, life-changing stories about the science. And one of the things that really occurred to me was we have this just powerhouse of information in, but it's oftentimes locked up in the ivory tower, Mm. right? So it's either, it just stays in academic conferences. It's in scientific journal articles, which if you're certainly not trained in that jargon, it doesn't make any sense. Or even now, sometimes it's behind paywalls. So I decided that my job was now going to be this translational leader. Mm. And what that means is sort of really taking the, the neuroscience, the neuroscientific truths of our life and rooting it in people's lived experiences. And I really talk about the relationship now between the brain leadership and emotional intelligence. Mm. And I certainly talk about it, you know, scientifically. But the other thing I want to say here is I think everyone who's a leader can relate to what I call the overs. So the overs are mm. overworking. Mm overthinking, over-delivering, over-analyzing, over-giving, over-pleasing, over, I mean, over, 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 over. Right. What I really had to, and isn't it interesting how sometimes we can know something intellectually, but then we can't really control our, our behavior. So this is a little bit sure. of an irony as a neuropsychologist, but I talk about the knowing of the brain and the knowing of the bones, right? Mm-hmm. They're very different. You know, I'm, I'm really kind of now talking about this knowing, this embodied knowing, and I think a lot of high-performing leaders, we overdo it. Mm-hmm. We overwork, we overgive, we overdeliver. 60 hours of work is not enough. And I will tell you what that is. That is a that is a pain response and that is a trauma response. Oh, interesting. In other words, the only reason a human being would ever overdo. Right. It's one thing to give. It's another thing to overgive. It's one thing mm-hmm. to work. It's another thing to overwork. The only impulse for that is danger. Mm. In other words, I feel unsafe. I feel insecure. I feel like I'm somehow being threatened. And so I have to over. But this is a dysregulated posture of the nervous system. So I now really talk to high performing leaders and I have kind of these, these two streams. One is obviously my neuroscientific and academic training, but this other is this very lived experience of what does it mean to really perform well? Mm-hmm. And I don't think overperformance, I don't think that's performing well on any level. Right. I don't think it's performing well relationally, mm-hmm. interpersonally, or intrapersonally. So when you were in, in academia, would you say you were overing? Were you overperforming, oh, oh overpublishing, overworking? Oh my God, yes. So what 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 drove that? In you, we could say it's a positive, like you have passion for your work, but did you connect that like personally to a pain and trauma response? That's, that's. 
Yeah. You know, I always say I have this, um, I always say that no one has ever in the history of my career come to see me because they've been getting hit in the face with a two by four. In other words, the first time you get hit in the face with a two by four, it's just unequivocally bad. It's just unequivocally painful. You're like, let's just stop. We never need to repeat that. Uh But any pain that shows up in your life, honest to God, more than three times, it's because it is, it is a both and situation meaning it is pleasurable and it is painful. It is good Mm -hmm. and it is bad. It is light and it is dark. So did I love my work? In other words, Mm -hmm. was there a part of it that really absolutely brought me joy and meaning and stimulation? 100% yes. Was there also a part of me that felt like it was, it was sort of touching some level of insufficiency. Mm -hmm. And and try and compensate for that. Yeah. Mm -hmm right? Got to hustle. It's this whole idea of like, we have to hustle for our worth. We have to hustle for our value. We have to hustle for our our identity. But the second you start doing that, can you, can you even feel in my words, how it starts to feel like this push energy? Uh There's a little bit of like, instead of me, you know, standing Mm -hmm. up in an upright posture, I'm really starting to lean. Yeah. That is, you know, it makes perfect sense if we're talking about physical posture and it's also absolutely true Mm -hmm. of our nervous systems. Mm -hmm. The second we start to step into beyond kind of the healthy zone, we're sure. operating in ways that are not powerful. Yeah. And, and you know, you, you make me think one thing, and sometimes people I work with who know me well enough call me out on it, or my wife will call me out on it. Um, not to turn this into a counseling session, or we, but like there's times where um I suddenly feel like I'm fired up about something and even just tone of voice goes from kind of normal to suddenly being a little, just a little more, not, not, not necessarily too much. Uh, I'm going to have to think back of like what, what those triggers are or frustrations or, you know, uh, it's usually, I think, yeah, not necessarily a positive enthusiasm. It's, it's a response to some pain. I think too, like, really my whole career, both academic and now, you know, and I still, what's what's wonderful now is I still get to collaborate on research projects and I'm still very involved in science, but not to the same degree. I'm not doing it for 60 hours a week. So I'm doing more, you know, individual work with patients. And then I do a lot of um, coaching. I do a lot of coaching of leadership teams. I do a lot of coaching of couples and I do a lot of coaching of families. So if you think Mm -hmm. about the parent-child reaction and one thing that you just made kind of this great point. So I believe that obviously, well, this isn't really a statement of belief. It's quite evident that our entire life is governed by our brain, Mm -hmm. right? So like without the brain, like there's no human life, certainly as we understand it. So I really think that it's very useful for people to think about the brain as a machine. Okay. It's a machine. Great. Well, my cell phone's also a machine. Okay. So my cell phone, it works until it doesn't, meaning at night I have to plug it in and get an energy or or an electricity supply. So there's this really powerful question, which is what is the electricity that powers the brain? Mm -hmm. And the electricity or the energy that powers the brain is emotion. Mm -hmm. And I mean that metaphorically, but I also mean it quite literally, right? Emotions are electrochemical impulses. This is almost like mind blowing if you really like kind of feel into it, but there is Mm -hmm. nothing in your life. There is nothing in your life that has any meaning until an emotion is assigned to it. In other words, Mm. the way that human beings derive meaning entirely comes from affective or emotional systems in the brain. So is it good to be a leader? I don't know. How do you feel about it? 
Sure. Is money good? I don't know. How do you feel about it? Was being in academia good? How do you feel you about it? You had to think about that. Or, right. I'm sorry, not thinking about my, how did you feel about it? <laughs> right. But, but and, and you know, obviously emotion and cognition, they're, they're, they go together. Mm-hmm. But you just kind of said like, I don't, sometimes my voice will go up and I won't really know, like, obviously there's some nervous system arousal, but is mm-hmm. it like, is it excitement or is it more fear or is it more agitation? Yeah. I think what happens to a lot of us, and I'm going to explain this like from a developmental perspective, and it's going to make perfect sense, mm-hmm. is we have severed ourselves from the native language of our brain. Hmm. In other words, we're not, we're not deeply in tuned with the powerful nuances of our emotions. So we oftentimes don't know, does overworking feel good to me? Mm-hmm. You want me to tell you the number, the number one question people come to me to ask, and they, they might put different words to it, but they're saying, I don't know what to do with my life. Sure. I don't know. So the question then becomes like, well, where does that confusion come from? Mm-hmm. I want you to think about childhood really quick. Children are never, young, young children are never, I have two little kids. They're never mm-hmm. confused about how they feel. They want candy. They no, want, no uh, and like, whatever. they'll want, like, they'll be super happy about the candy and then they'll be mad because the candy's gone and then they'll be screaming yep. and then they'll be laughing. So it's like this pure unbridled emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're never confused. They're never like, you know, I'm, I'm actually feeling sad, but I'm going to put on a happy face for you. Right. Sure. So the question I, becomes, go ahead. I was going to, or I want the candy, but I know I shouldn't because I'm trying to watch my health and yeah, right. that, is that con- internal conflict. Yeah. But if you look at what happens early in our development, we start getting these messages. Mm. Go, go tell her you're sorry. I'm not sorry. (laughs) Sit down. I don't want to sit down. Keep your mouth shut, but I want to talk. Don't, don't, you shouldn't be, little boy shouldn't be doing that. Little girl shouldn't Mm -hmm. be, but I want to do that. You know, so very early in our childhood, we start getting this coding at the time that the brain is the most plastic, the, Mm. the most you know, um, open to change that our emotional experiences are not to be trusted. So now fast forward 20 years, 30 years, when we're in jobs that make our bodies hurt, they make Mm -hmm. us sick, they make us feel depleted, they make us feel depressed. Mm -hmm. It's like we have severed ourselves from our own emotional power and our own emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. You can't get the math on that to work. Yeah. So I want, I want to go back to your story. I mean, did, did you have, you, you said it was bittersweet. It sounds like it was a tough decision to leave academia. Were, were, was, was that sort of that inner emotion or your core or your gut or however you might describe it? Like, I need to leave this, but part of your brain was trying to say, hey, Julia, no, you, you've spent 28 years working toward this. You're good at it. You need to stick with it. Like that. Yeah, there was that absolutely that that pain or that tension of like, I you know we we have parts of ourselves right. There's a part of you that wants to do this, and there's a part of you that wants to do that. There's a part of you that likes this, and there's a part of you. So there were two parts of me that were very loud, right? There was a part of me that was like, I have, but a lot at that point, like right before I left, the part was. So I'll I'll tell you another story. So it's it's actually like alarming to me to tell this story. So, Mm -hmm. um. My, I have two children. My, my first labor was, it was awful. It was horrific. Um, and it was, it was very, um, it was bad. So with my second child, um, 
I think there was some anxiety about, I didn't want to get to the hospital too early. So we, I live in Chicago. There was a snowstorm going on and it was clear that I was like deep into labor. And my husband kept going, Julia, like we need to, we need to get in the car. Like we need to go. And I was like, no, I can't get in the car yet because I'm working on a grant. Mm. So my husband's like, all right, like obviously it ain't my bodies, but this seems a little bit. And finally he's like, now the snow is like picking up and not like the contractions are coming. And he was like, yeah. we are getting in the car. Like I am not going to be the dude on the news who has to deliver a baby on Lakeshore drive because you're working. Mm-hmm. So I got to the hospital and this child Mark, she fell out of me. Like right when I walked in the triage, like the baby was out. So Okay. So then I, so in other words, this labor was much easier in a way, but then, you know, you stay in the hospital for two days to recover. You want to know what I did for my recovery? Cause I was, I was, I wasn't, you know, cut open or I started more working, work. yeah. did more work. Yeah. I did more work. Is that because and I'm, I'm, you know, I'll be honest. Like I'm going to, sh- this is why mental health is so confusing. If you had talked to the like psychologist in me, the neuropsychologist, the mental health expert Mm -hmm. about someone else's behavior, in other words, my own emotional systems weren't involved, I could have been like, I don't think that's the healthiest thing to do right now. How about you just mm, rest? Yeah. But do you see how rest for those of us who feel like we need our work to be safe? Rest mm-hmm. feels like trauma. Or, or or that's where our identity is found. As Correct. I think you, you were saying earlier. Correct. I mean, was was how much of it was loving your work versus avoiding something else? You said you're, you're avoiding going to the hospital. Was work just or was it both of those things? Well, I think the delay in me going to the hospital was. Um, I think there was like, obviously the, the trauma from the first birth that I was sure. just like, I can't go there for that many days again. But I also think too, and this is very true of a lot of women, we do not, especially the, you know, like when we put so much into our careers, we do not feel safe. So it's like, I kind of knew I was going to have this child and then mm. as, as intense as labor is, which, oh my God, um, you kind of know the first three months, four months, five months, six months is going to be a just a battlefield, you know, you're not sleeping, you're, there's fluids everywhere, the baby's screaming, like, mm-hmm. so it, you, I feel like, I'll just speak for myself, like, it wasn't logical, but there was this kind of pain, panic reaction, like, if I could just, like, pump out this grant, right? it's the illusion of it'll be enough, but the problem with that illusion is, like, there is no bottom on my cup, so, I, I do this grant. I publish this article. I, I, you know, I make this deal. I sell this widget. Oh, I'll be safe then. But really, the the problem is in the way that I hold my own energy. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, and and I mean, one thing that I've had the opportunity to be exposed to and learn about um, through professional circles in healthcare. Uh, is a, an approach called motivational interviewing, which has so many insights, including the idea that even at a very individual level, yet alone organizational change, is that we're complicated. We'll have reasons to change, reasons not to change, and somebody can help us sort through that, right? So back to academia, you had reasons to leave academia, you had reasons not to, and, and sometimes people just get stuck. Yeah. 
It's and, very and, easy to get stuck. And I think the stuck is precisely as you described. It's because, again, if it was just the two by four in the face, you'd be like, what do I need to do to change this immediately? Yeah, yeah. So it's the it's the good and the bad. It's the light and the dark. It's the yes mm-hmm. and the no. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I do think this idea of there's so much out there about emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. And this next phase of my life where I'm really like embodying emotional intelligence, really teaching others to embody emotional intelligence. It's a gorgeous thing. In fact, I just did another podcast interview on it earlier today. Mm -hmm. And the person was saying, well, there's all these domains of emotional intelligence, right? There is um, perseverance, there is communication, there's empathy with others. But I, I feel like now my job on the planet is to just simplify, just like, it's amazing to watch people kind of give this much attention to emotional intelligence and mm-hmm. mental health, but I think we're unnecessarily complicating it. There's another over. We're overcomplicating. Bro, there you go. There you go. Exactly. Yeah. I think this is the only definition people need to understand for emotional intelligence to really land in their lives. And it's this, who do I become? Who do I become in my own moments of pain? Mm-hmm. Now, pain is a big word, but the brain is a small thing, right? So it's just less than three pounds. And the parts of your brain that give rise to any of your bad feelings, I don't care if you call it stress, overwhelm, anxiety, fear, agitation, frustration, rage, it's still the same parts of the brain that give rise to those sensations. Pretty clear. So I call it emotional pain because they are the pain circuits in the brain. So any time that let's take communication as a form of emotional intelligence, if I'm working with you on a team or I'm your boss and you're listening to me and agreeing with me and you think everything that comes out of my mouth is great or you're very amenable. That's wonderful. I hope we all occasionally have situations like those, but that doesn't require anything of my own leadership power. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. In fact, in a lot of ways, you are the one who holds the power in the situation and people get this confused. In other words, you are giving me your listening. You are giving me your understanding. You are giving me your cooperation. Sure. I should be very grateful for that. But if we're talking about how to become a more powerful version of ourselves, how to meet our mistakes and meet our pain, then I need to know what happens to my behavior, my emotional systems, and my thinking systems when I don't like the words coming out of your mouth. Mm-hmm. When you won't do it my way, when you don't agree with me, mm-hmm. when you're pushing me in a direction that no one needs help with communication or empathy or perseverance. I mean, the only reason perseverance is perseverance is because it hurts. Yeah. It's not perseverance until it hurts. Mm -hmm. So I think, again, there's this, there's this like much simpler and then paradoxically much more powerful conversation about how to show up as leaders in our life. Is it fair to say, I mean, one, one thing, one impression I've gotten when it comes to emotional intelligence, we could break down, we could maybe break that down into our ability to understand others. So maybe that's empathy and, and things like that. And then how much of it is our ability to understand ourselves? But see, I think those things are one of the same. Mm-hmm. Again, I want to even mm-hmm. simplify it more because do I really need help understanding you when we're getting along? The only time I need to draw on the power of empathy, which is a gorgeous thing, is when you start to put pressure on me. I need you to be at the office, but you can't be at the office today because of your mental health. I need you to be at this meeting, but you can't be there because you got something going on with your kids. And I start to feel my own stress. I start to feel my own 
but that's all my own stuff. Mm -hmm. In other words, every single relational problem in the world on our teams at work, with our clients, our customers, with our with our partners and with our children happens because so the brain has two super fundamental but competing drives, okay? It is the drive for connection. And this is a neurobiological thing, right? The clearest sense is, you know, we see it in the infant, right? The, the parent mm-hmm. literally regulates the infant's nervous system. But we also see this with our, our romantic partners. Tons of scientific evidence out there that our partners regulate us and dysregulate us, so for better or for worse. Yeah. And there's also this fascinating research out there now that, like, we always knew that we are, we liked our coworkers, that they could drive us a little bit batty. There's mm-hmm. now starting to be research into the interpersonal neurobiology of the people we work mm-hmm. with. Makes perfect sense. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the drive, the brain's drive for connection is very clear. Here's the competing drive. The brain's drive for choice. Ah. And I don't care if you call that autonomy or, you know, it was just the 4th of July, right. independence, freedom. Um, and, you know, if you've ever had a little kid, it starts very early in development. You give the one-year-old the orange cup. When the one-year-old said she wanted the green cup, mm-hmm. hell hath no fury. <laughs> right. So from cradle to grave, the human is wired to express choice. Mm-hmm. Okay, so here's, here's where the conflict comes. Mark, I totally want to be connected with you. I love working with you. I love talking to you. There's only one stipulation. Mm-hmm. We're, we're going to do it my way, okay? <laughs> And the well, that, reason that always creates relational tension or relational pain is because you're working your own script. In other words, you're working your own drive for your vision right. of what your life is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. So until leaders understand that we both need connection and we need to give people sufficient freedom, there's right. going to be relational it, disharmony, relational pain. Right. It, it seems like taking away the choice or forcing your choice on others hurts that connection. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. You can have um, compliance or you can have connection. Mm, mm, right. And 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 uh, that word compliance, as I've uh, said uh, many times, like uh, having an organization that's compliant, full of compliant people is not a pathway to greatness. Like that's a pathway to surviving maybe or mediocrity at best. You, 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 you can't breed. I've, worked, I've been in workplaces earlier in my career where leaders were absolutely just satisfied with compliance. And, and it was really, really damaging. I I love how you said like even that word, right? There's like a frequency to that word. It's like, ooh, <laughs> kind of makes you. But there's also a myth there too. Like you can't, you you could never, so this whole idea of like command and control leadership right. models, you want to talk about a big mistake. Mm-hmm. That was always an illusion, right? And, and right. the way that we know this, the most powerful leadership on the planet is the leadership between the parent and child, right? Just mm-hmm. neurobiologically, it's the strongest It's the strongest leadership on the planet just because of the biology. Sure. So we can't even get, like, have you ever tried to get a two-year-old in a car seat? Like, you, you the child, you know. I'm, I'm, I'm not a parent, so I, I don't really. But you can that, imagine, everyone, right? You know, have you ever imagine. seen, like, the, like the toddler mm-hmm. plank, like, their, their body just goes limp? It's like, <laughs> well, you're 30 pounds, so I can still pick you up right now. Right. But I'm, in other words, like, Command and control doesn't even work with the people who are literally wired to love us. Like, good luck with making that work with Bob and finance and Susie (laughs) and HR, and it doesn't work. Right. But that's been perpetuated for 
a long time that it works or it's necessary or whatever excuses people make for that. And I've, I've found, I mean, I've, again, early in my career, worked in an environment where I've, I've, I've noticed no, nobody ever says, yeah, we're a command and control organization. And like as a positive descriptor, they would just say we're managing or we're doing. It's always those of us that are critical of it that use that term. <laughs> stop, stop with the command and control leadership. There's a better way. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point because there is like there is like a pejorative connotation to it. But but also too, again, to go back to like the premise of because I just want it to be so simple for people. The whole reason, the only reason I would ever need to control you is because I can't control myself. Mm. In other words, if you don't do X, I'm not gonna get Y. Okay, but Y is never Y, because it only I already said in this interview. Wise meaning is entirely determined by my emotions. Mm-hmm. So if you don't do X, I'm not going to get Y. And that's going to make me feel behind. Mm-hmm. It's going to make me panic. It's going to make me stress out. I'm going to be laying it in bed at night thinking about it. I'm, in other words, there I am again, back in my own feelings, back in my own painful feelings. Every single time it takes us back to our painful feelings. So if you can't figure it out there, you are not you are not working from the most powerful upstream place. It is it is neurobiologically that simple. So I I'm, I'm, I don't mean to bring you back uh, up upstream to pain, but I did want to close one loop a bit on the story that you told Julia on, on leaving uh, academia. I mean, again, it sounds like it was a tough decision and that you agonized over it. I, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not convinced it was a mistake. I mean, it seems like it's opened a lot of doors to for you and you've done a lot of great things. But what I'm curious is, was there a period where it did feel like a mistake or at least oh, you were yeah. questioning? Can, can you tell us more like about that phase and then how you managed to get past that? Yeah, no, I mean, I it felt like a mistake. I mean, let me just kind of paint the picture for you, right? So I, it becomes clear that so I'm at a, at a an amazing institution. I'm with, you know, working with some of the top cognitive and affective neuroscientists in the world. Um, you know, we're just publishing really exciting stuff with fMRI and EEG and really kind of like understanding powerful things about the way the brain regulates emotion. Mm-hmm. Now I have another baby. It's a, it's a newborn. This happened right after she was born that I decided not to come back. Mm-hmm. So I have two children under two. I'm also living with my mother who is unwell. So I'm taking care of three people. I'm not sleeping. And I'm just thinking like, so so in other words, like the lack of sleep just like obviously dysregulates your nervous system in and Mm -hmm. of itself. So I'm just thinking I have made an unrecoverable error because one thing about academia too, is it's very much like once you leave the... Mm -hmm. Um, I don't want to get too nuanced, but there's like a very specific trajectory of how you right. get grants and think sort of benchmarks that you hit. It's very, very rare that someone would leave and come back in, in the right. same capacity. Right. Um, so I was like, I just ruined everything. You know, it was it was depressing. That's the right word. Yeah. And so- I was going through the motions because I had quite literally, you know, people to keep alive. Mm-hmm. But I was like, I don't, there, I, there's no meaning to my life. I'm, I'm just kind of swimming in this morass of bad feelings. And I, I've lost my identity, did not yeah. feel good. But I think I had to, you know, I had a kind of come to Jesus moment with myself where I was just like, all right, again, kind of this intellectual knowing. And I said, 
whenever, so one of the big things we study is post-traumatic growth, Mm. right? This idea of resilience. So I was like, okay, Julia, you know this stuff. Like, what would you say to a patient? And I said, like, the the whole idea of growth after pain, because I want to be clear, it did, you know, you asked, did it feel like a mistake? It did. It wasn't like, this is great. And I'm going to go on to this really thriving career and build this business. And it was for a long time, it was dark and it was slow and I waffled. But the whole idea of resilience, once again, is about emotional power. Well, emotional power only happens in the context of emotional pain. You can't be resilient in the absence of resistance. You can't be Mm. powerful in, in the absence of resistance. So I had to say, like, even in the darkness, I'm going to have to hold a vision. I'm going to have to get up. I'm going to have to start moving. I'm going to have to take baby steps. I'm going to have to go slower than feels satisfying. But like you, you, and I think that's a great example of power is like, how do we draw on ourselves when we don't feel like it? Mm. So, I mean, that's one of the things I say, we, me as hosts or we as an audience and guests are trying to figure that out, right? Like it's not about dwelling on the mistake, but figuring out how to grow after that pain or is, is an appropriate way of phrasing it of like how to leave the pain behind? Or is that, is that not even no, I don't that think that's, possible? Let me tell you, this is a great frame. So obviously like I, as, as a sort of pain researcher, if there was a way to leave pain, you absolutely should. In other words, I'm not like a a champion of pain or or a glutton for pain. Mm -hmm. But one thing that it's so important for people to understand is like the brain is a pain detection machine. This is what it's fundamentally around to do. Mm -hmm. Just like you would never ask your lungs not to breathe or your heart not to beat. If you put people in an austere laboratory environment, there's literally nothing to do. You just have to sit in a room. People will report feeling pain. Mm -hmm. With, In other with words, no correct. obvious or right. no one's shocking cause. you, no one's wow. threatening you. So the brain will generate. Haven't you ever heard people like look? People can't be bored. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> yeah, it's quite. It, it becomes a painful experience. So the best question is not how do I avoid pain. Mm-hmm. There's a really difficult conversation I want to have with you, Mark. I'm afraid to have it. I'm going to avoid it. There's a really, you know, brave thing that I want to do, but I'm too scared to do it. I'm going to avoid it. There's a, any, every time we avoid, we're not actually avoiding pain because now I have to sit with the pain that I abandoned myself. Mm-hmm. I really wanted to have a tough conversation with you. I really had this dream for this business that I wanted to build. I really had this expression I wanted to make on this podcast that I wanted to do. And I didn't. I know that I abandoned myself. So the more powerful heuristic for your listeners is not how do I avoid pain because the brain will always detect pain. The more powerful question, and this is such a powerful question, is how do I choose the most powerful pain? Mm. So if it's, so let me go back to this example. I'm thinking about talking to you, Mark, but it's making me anxious. That's pain. Mm-hmm. Who would want who would want to feel anxious? No one. Right. All right. But if I don't talk to you, I'm going to have to know that I didn't stand up for myself, that I didn't express mm-hmm. myself, that I didn't deepen my relationship with you. Sure. Different pain. Different pain. It's mm-hmm. a more powerful pain for me to have the anxious conversation. That's what I choose. And uh-huh. the second I choose that, I expand the edge of my emotional power. And I expand the edge of my emotional power. I'm sure 
you know, when you started doing the podcast, weren't they way more anxiety provoking than they are now? Sometimes. Yeah. It, it depends on a, a number of things. How much, uh, how many other things do I have going on that day? Do I feel like I've had taken the time to properly prepare mm-hmm. um, in terms of like research or background or just mentally prepare? Um, there's some people I, I interview, I, I feel I, I, I interview and it surprises me sometimes when it comes up. Um, it's not that I'm intimidated, but I don't know if it's a, you know an excited kind of nervousness. Um, I interviewed Jim McCann recently. He's the founder of 1-800-Flowers, if you know that company. And I wasn't nervous going into it, but then seeing him live on Zoom and I've seen him do TV commercials and I don't know, like that familiarity maybe should have been comforting. But like in the beginning, I felt very nervous and I kind of called it out and said, okay, hopefully I, <laughs> I can move on from that. But um, there's there's more to reducing that nervousness than just practice and experience. There seem to be other factors, I think, is what I'm seeing. But do you think even that novel, because it sounds like there was something about the novelty of him, like his public presence Mm -hmm. and his, what's the word, fame or, you know, sort of notoriety? He's well known. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if you if you think about the neuroscientific of, of anxiety, the, the best way to overcome it is through exposure. Mm -hmm. So this idea that Mm. that practice really does reduce anxiety, Mm -hmm. it, but you have to practice the right thing. So in other words, I, I would lay odds to dollars because I would put my money on the literature that if you started interviewing 15 famous people, whatever you classify that as Mm -hmm. that by the 15th person, there would be absolutely a decrement in the anxiety. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I can believe that I could. So, um, you know, famous, famous people, um, you know, I did get to interview uh, a congressman back in the second episode. I had met him before, but still there was that nervousness of like, wow, he's giving his time. I don't want to somehow disappoint him or you know, give him a bad experience. Um, I think There's that, that people I think- pleasing. There's that people pleasing. Uh, yeah, but I think it worked. I think it worked out well. Um, but I was going to ask you though, um, you know, as I, I referenced in your bio of of what it seemed like you moved on from academia. How how did you get to work in politics? Can we talk about politics without being political? But I'm just curious, like how you made that shift and yeah, did so that, that ever came feel earlier. like that, that came feel, earlier? That was earlier. Life. Ah, yeah. Okay. So I I was in pretty high level politics very early in my career. So I. Um, I started at the White House, and then from the White House, I did a, I did multiple presidential campaigns, and then I worked for um, a very large political consulting firm and did a lot of congressional races and gubernatorial races. So I've really kind of run the gamut from hmm. the White House down to Congress and even some mayoral stuff. And so one of the things, again, I, I've always been, my father is a psychologist, mm-hmm. so I come from kind of a lineage of psychologist. I'm a natural listener. I'm always drawn to people's stories. So I always had a psychological, you know, I used to read his psychology textbooks, his bedtime stories. So just really, really deep academic understanding of emotional intelligence and psychology from an early age. So even in the political, I was like, why, why are people having the same conversation? And this was me 20 years ago, right? Why are people having the same conversation over and over? It's just a tug of war. I say red, you say blue. I say yes, you say no. And then it becomes this really recalcitrant, 
dynamic that creates so much pain and so much destruction. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I was saying the other day is I could take, you know, news headlines from 20 some years ago when I was at the White House and like take out all the identifying details and you would swear that they were from today's news. Mm-hmm. And the reason is because people are overly focused, here we go again, on the on the situational specifics. Mm-hmm. And they're not thinking enough about the emotional energy, the the rage and the fear and the sadness. So I was always thinking about kind of how psychological or emotional energies were moving. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I wanted to, I didn't think there was enough of an emotional exploration process in the political process. In other words, mm-hmm. I thought it was just going to be the same thing day in and day out. So I wanted to move more into uh, field and policy work. So I started doing a lot of international humanitarian aid. So I've worked mm. all over the globe in very, very traumatized environments. I've worked with combat veterans. I've worked with child soldiers. I've worked with torture survivors, um, mm. very intense trauma. Right. And just started to realize like there is a need for different ways to talk about emotional intelligence in our larger systemic processes, whether that's a business process or a political process. Yeah. So you say 20 years ago, was this the, the George W. Bush White House? No, the Clinton White House. Clinton White House. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I, I had a guest previously, Rebecca Contreras, who was a staffer uh, in George W. Bush's administration. So we have equal time to, to people from both administrations. So, so thank you for telling us about that. So, you know, a couple, maybe a couple of the questions to ask you here. Um, we, you know, as, as an expert, what happens with our nervous system? What what is that reaction that that seems to occur when we realize we've made a mistake? So yeah, there's a, there's a part of the brain that is in charge of error recognition. Mm. So error recognition is you know, and you can imagine if we put people so neuropsychological testing, you put people in very kind of emotionally austere environments. So for example, we would say every time you see an on the screen, hit the space bar. And people, the task is very tedious. There's boredom again. People do not do well with boredom. So after time, people start making mistakes. And a lot of times people will be able to immediately detect, okay, I hit the space bar wrong. And so we'll we'll kind of recognize that with certain activity in certain parts of the brain. The situation, but those aren't the the mistakes that bother people. Mm -hmm. The mistakes that bother people are always when there's some painful emotion. And I'm going to just be get really right to the point. It's the energy of humiliation. Mm. If there's shame, humiliation, inadequacy, embarrassment, again, all those things that get, you're thinking about the brain, they're the same. I don't care what words we give them. They're the same processes. So if I think I was supposed to be, if I was really smart, if I was really good, if I was really competent, I should be an academic my whole life. And then I can't. My brain is not just going to be like, oh, that does, we don't recognize that as part of the pattern. It's also going to add this emotional valence. Well, you're not good enough. You couldn't hack it. You, and then, and then that's when the brain becomes super, super sensitive to mistakes. Think about perfectionism. All Mm. perfectionism is, is fear of mistakes. Well, Mm. do you think that's a powerful position or do you think that's incredibly emotionally brittle? The the perfectionist is is living in pain. In other words, if I don't not only do the double, triple flip, but I don't also stick the landing, I'm a total loser. It's another another example of the over. 
That is not emotionally powerful. That is so brittle. And the amount then that you could actually accomplish in your life, the amount that you can experience, the sensuality you can have, you know, the, the room for joy, the room for experience, the room for memories, it's it's very, very constricted. And so it's it actually leaves people feeling quite unfulfilled. Mm-hmm. But then how how do we best try to move forward from that? So I think there's a great physical analogy that I think rings very clear for people. So if I, I call this the emotional shake. So if I want to get more powerful physically, I would, I go to the gym and I can lift five pounds today. So tomorrow when I go to lift 10 pounds, my muscle is again, quite literally going to shake. We've all kind of done that thing where like our bicep starts to fatigue. Okay. But no one goes, Oh my God, this is a disaster. Mark quick, like call 911. My muscles shaking. Yeah. It's like, I, it doesn't feel great, but I actually can feel quite satisfied because I know that the shaking is itself the evidence mm-hmm. of my increasing strength, my increasing sure, power. Sure. Yeah. Now notice on the emotional side and, and the, the analogy almost applies perfectly. When I go to, let's go back to like, I'm going to give a big speech or I'm going to, yeah, let's say that I'm going to get on stage and give a big speech never, never done this before. I'm going to shake. In other words, my body might shake. My hands might shake. My voice might quiver. My stomach might be in knots, but notice here that a lot of us will go, Oh my God, no, that's, that's imminent death. I'm going to totally, I'm going to totally wreck my reputation. I'm going to, and then we avoid, I'm never doing that again. Well, if I go to the gym and I lift five, I try to lift 10 pounds. And the first time I lift it, I, my muscle shakes and I go, I'm never doing this again. Right. It's clear as day. I'm never going to get more emotionally powerful, but now here. So the number one thing to do is to say, I have to start seeing the emotional shake, the, the knots in my stomach and the quivering in my throat and the sweating of my palms and the dilation of my pupil, all these kind of neurophysiologic signs of intensity as, as satisfying not something that I need to run and stick my head in the sand, number one. Now, here's number two. If I can only lift five pounds, would I go to the gym tomorrow and try to lift a 100-pound dumbbell? No. no. I'd rip my bicep off. Right. So we're not trying to go and create extreme pain. We're trying to say, what is the edge of our power? Mm. So maybe Emotional. I need to maybe yeah. I, exactly. Yeah. Maybe I need a teleprompter this time. Maybe I need to memorize my speech. Still going to be hard because there's a big crowd, but I have it memorized. Yeah. It's like we have to be willing to confront. And if you think about all that is, this is the part that like blows my mind all the time. And I, when I really see it pop for business leaders, it's like you see they finally get it. It's such a, I get chills every time because I'm like, oh, they're finally, they're finally home. They're finally almost free. The only thing that we're really afraid of is not the thing that's happening in the outside world. It's just sensation. It's actually only just the beating of my heart. Mm-hmm. It's actually only just the tightening of my throat. Like I, I, I do a lot of PTSD treatment. So when we do PTSD treatment, I have people, for example, processing very, very horrific things. I'm not talking about just confronting, you know, a difficult boss. I'm talking, right. let's, let's take right. sexual trauma. Let's take combat trauma. So I'll have people say, lady, you think I'm talking about that? I'm not talking about that. And I'll say, okay, well, tell me, what do you think is going to happen? And they'll say, I, th- I think I'm going to die. 
And I'll say, okay, totally get it. Let's talk about that. Do you think that any, anyone in the history of the world has really died from mm. talking about anything? And then they're like, well, no. Okay, well, what else is going to happen? My head's going to explode. Have you known anyone's head to explode? <laughs> right. Okay, so hi, everybody. Those who are watching on YouTube are go going to notice what Hollywood would call a continuity error. I am no longer wearing a hat. I no longer have AirPods in. Julia is wearing a different blouse. Um, the power went out. <laughs> so I apologize, Julia, that we were interrupted there. You don't need to apologize. This has definitely been the most exciting podcast I've ever been on. I, when it first happened, I was like, oh my God, did my internet just fail? You know, you start to panic. So um, as soon as I realized it wasn't my mistake, I was super cool. So I don't mind at all. And it was a very exciting journey. And I don't think it was a mistake on my part. A thunderstorm came through. The power was out for three or four hours as it, as it turned out. So I think there's a lesson. Sometimes something there's a problem, but it's not necessarily caused by a mistake. But then thankfully, and, and thank you for Julia for hopping back on here, um, as it turns out, a couple months later, but we'll, we'll bring the podcast in for a close here. But you, you remembered more clearly than me that we had mentioned the previous internet outage that had interrupted a webinar. And that was kind of more based on a mistake of something I could have, should have anticipated. It was kind of wild. It's funny because we had talked about like, oh, we were laughing like that will never happen to us. And then we had an outage. So these things happen. And again, I was just like, oh, my God, did my kid, you know, trip over the wire or something? So <laughs> these things happen. Things happen. So um, I want to you know, kind of bring it back to I was going to ask you. Uh, you've written a book um, that is uh, an upcoming book. Um, you said fall of 2023. Is that right? Yeah, the publisher is Harvard Business Review. And right now they're saying fall of 2023. So we were just kind of talking before we came back on camera how the whole publishing world is a fascinating world. Um, mm -hmm. This is my first popular press book. So I'm learning a lot. Well, that's really exciting to, to be published by um, HBR. So, you know, tell, tell us about the book. What, what, what are you writing? How is it being framed? for a, a business reader audience, a general audience? Yeah, so the book is um, tentatively titled From Pain to Power, The Neuroscience of Powerful Leadership in Painful Times. So hopefully the, the title is pretty elucidating, but it's this mm -hmm. idea of these are incredibly uncertain times. They're volatile times. And the brain, as we've talked about, has an allergy to the uncertain. And really, if you look at the way the brain processes uncertainty, is it becomes a very painful response. In fact, mm -hmm. if you look at laboratory settings, there's plenty of studies that show that people would rather receive an electric shock mm. than be uncertain as to whether or not they're going to get an electric shock. So it just really goes to wow. show, yes. So when we say huh. that uncertainty is painful, mm -hmm. we mean that not just metaphorically, but literally. So how do we lead? How do we show up with really, really powerful leadership in painful times and what's the neuroscience behind it. So I think the book's going to offer, well, I know for a fact the book's going to offer what I'm calling eight energetic codes mm -hmm. of how to think about really powerful leadership for yourself as a leader, and then also how to think about powerful leadership in relation. So how do we build the most powerful relationships? And I'm very, very excited about it. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll look forward to that. And you you answered the question I was about to ask of, you know, it's one thing to describe, here's the neuroscience. 
here's how we generally are. But then the, the, the next interesting thing is what can we do about it without, we, we're not going to change our brain. Right. Absolutely. I think that what's so cool about this day and age, right. is like, we do have a lot of very powerful, insightful neuroscientific evidence. And I think that so much of our dysfunction, so much of our stress, so much of our challenges, so much of our pain, I'm going to, I, use that word a lot in our conversation comes because if you think about it, the brain is really a machine and we just don't know how to operate the machine. So I think we create a lot of pain and dysfunction by asking things of the brain that we're really quite sure of neuroscientifically, the brain can't deliver. Mm -hmm. So it's like, how do we, if we know that the brain has an allergy to uncertainty, what's the best way, for example, to think about uncertainty in a really powerful way? Mm -hmm. If we know relationships can be challenging to the point of being painful, how do we think powerfully about what our brain as a leader needs and the people who we're trying to lead? So I think, you know, one of the things I was super, there was two things I told my editor I wanted. I wanted the book to be beautiful Mm -hmm. and I wanted the book to be practical. My editor was like, that's interesting. It's not usually a combination you hear together, but he was pretty excited about it. And I think we really nailed that. I think it's a gorgeous book. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so practical. Well, we'll send some updates out, you know, through maybe, you know, maybe we'll come back and when, when uh, it's done and the uncertainty about the title even has been resolved, you know, we, we can come back and, and revisit your episode and announce the book being out. Um, there's one other uh, just uh, thing to share and get your reaction to. I, I worked for a company once where one of the behaviors that they wanted to see from people, I think the phrase was um, com- being comfortable with ambiguity. Mm. Mm. Maybe it's just a different way of saying, uh, hey, be cool with uncertainty. But what I hear you saying is, hey, easier said than done. Absolutely. One of the points that I make in the book is like we have, so language is so beautiful and it's so rich. So you can call it uncertainty, you can call it confusion, you can call it amorphous, you can call it ambiguous, but the brain, right? It's less than three pounds. It's processing uncertainty or ambiguity the same way, right? So similarly, the reason I felt so comfortable using the term pain is whether you're saying anxious and I'm saying stressed and he's saying frustrated and she's saying annoyed, the circuitry that's getting activated is the same. So to your point, like getting comfortable with ambiguity is so important. And the fundamental mistake I think people make is they put their energy in the wrong place. So they try to control situational outcomes. In other words, they try to control external things. Mm -hmm. How do I fix this situation? How do I make sure this person, how do I make sure that person and really the power play and people don't think about this, but the allergy to uncertainty becomes so much more attenuated when we start thinking about self power. Mm -hmm. And another way to say that is trust. In other words, if I am very, very strong in my trust of self, the uncertainty out there Mm -hmm. becomes far, far, far less painful. Mm. Well, that's that's very interesting. And thank you again for for being a guest. Um, It certainly wasn't painful to have you here on the show. I hope it wasn't painful for you. There there was uncertainty, not if we would get back together to to do the wrap up, but just uncertainty around when. So I'm I'm glad I'm glad that pain is behind us and that we could make it work out. Likewise, I had so much fun with you. And I think, again, we were talking about this before the camera started rolling, but I think what you're doing about this idea of 
favorite mistake. I think it's so fascinating. And I think there's just so much juice in there, like for emotional intelligence and how to kind of rise from the ashes. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. So uh, again, we've been joined by Dr. Julia DeGangi. Her website is neurohealthpartners.com. I'll put links in the show notes. You can go learn more about her and her work. And uh, I'm sorry, do you have an email newsletter or something people can sign up for to get notified about the book? Yeah, the best way to get in touch with me, and I sort of post this, is just to find me on LinkedIn. So LinkedIn at Dr. Julia DeGangi, and then on all the social media. So Facebook, Dr. Julia DeGangi, and Instagram, Dr. Julia DeGangi. So easy place, kind of pretty centralized. Okay, great. I'll make sure there's links there in the show notes. So Julia, thanks again. Really, Thank you so much. I had a great time. Thanks, Mark. Thanks again to Julia for sharing her story and her insights about learning and recovering from mistakes. To learn more about her, again, look for links in the show notes or go to markgraven.com slash mistake191. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.